Now, uh, regardless of what you think about Jesus and regardless of how you may think about Jesus or feel about Jesus, uh, the one thing that everybody agrees upon is at the center of history itself is one dominant figure, and that's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And when it comes to Jesus, Jesus is in a category uh, in and of himself. Uh, he's just not a religious leader. He, he's just not, you know, a philosopher or some social reformer. Uh, Jesus came, and when he came, he didn't come to build a movement on what he said or what he did. He came to build a movement on who he claimed to be. And he claimed to be the Messiah, and he, he claimed to be God's son. And on the hills of last week, being Easter, uh, let's just start here. Jesus' death and resurrection, it punctuated the point of his death. Um, Jesus' death and resurrection reminds us that Jesus' death, it meant something. It, it means something for you, it means something for me, it means something for the world. That somehow when Jesus died, it had cosmic implications. That somehow when Jesus died, it had personal implications for you and for me. Jesus' death and resurrection, it punctuated the point of his death and it validated his claims about himself. That means that if Jesus was indeed raised from the dead, and we believe that he was, it means that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And if Jesus is who he claimed to be, that means that Jesus is Lord. It means that we take our cues from Jesus. Uh, if Jesus is who he claims to be, it means that we read all of scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We read all of the scripture in light of who he is, what he said, and what he has done. And this is so important. I don't want you to miss it because th this is vital to what we're gonna be talking about today and the weeks to come. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, we read the scriptures in light of who he is and in light of what he said and what he did and what it means. And that means that if we are followers of Jesus, if we call ourselves Christians, it means that we all have to do the work to just not be content knowing what Jesus said. It's just not good enough to know what Jesus said. It's just not enough to believe that what Jesus said is true. It's just not good enough to be able to quote some of the things that Jesus said. We gotta move beyond being content with just knowing and believing what Jesus said. We've actually got to know what he meant by what he said. Because knowing what Jesus said and believing what Jesus said and being able to recite what Jesus said is not the same thing as knowing what Jesus meant by what he said. And I'm fearful that in a lot of churches and across this country, there's a lot of people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus and they know and they can recognize the things that Jesus said. The problem seems to be that maybe we don't have enough people who understand what Jesus meant by what he said. And that kind of forces us to wrestle with our ideas about Jesus, uh, the images that we carry around in our minds about Jesus. Uh, most of us, when it comes to Jesus, we were first introduced to Jesus back in, in childhood. Uh, so just so I know, here in London and our other campuses, uh, if you were not necessarily raised in church, or maybe you were raised in church, but at least on occasion, back when you were a child, you found yourself in a Sunday school room somewhere in some church. Just slip up your hand for just a moment. So yeah, I was, I was in Sunday school every once in a while. Okay, so a, a lot of us, not all of us, uh, but many of us. So most of us, we were introduced to Jesus in childhood. And, and at least for me, maybe for you. Childhood introduced to many of us a version of Jesus that was quite tame, dialed back, and domesticated. Because 
teachers were talking to children, so they accommodated the content for children. So what happened was, when we were in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, or we heard our grandmother or grandfather or an aunt and uncle talk about this, we heard a handful of rotating, repeating stories about some of Jesus's miracles. He healed the blind, he healed the sick, he gave the deaf their hearing back. On occasion, he raised the, the dead back to life. And so we, we heard these stories about some of Jesus's miracles. We heard stories about Jesus's parables and some of the certain things that, that Jesus taught, like blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor in spirit. And then of course, we were told about the cross and the resurrection. And it was just kind of a rotating merry-go-round that we would hear the same stories over and over and over again, you know, in childhood. And, and that was kind of our first introduction to Jesus. We saw pictures of Jesus. We colored pictures of Jesus. There were pictures of Jesus on the felt board. Or if you went to one of those rich churches, you had a VHS player and they showed you cartoons of Jesus. And, and, and Jesus almost always, whether you colored him or whether you saw him on the felt board or whether you're watching, you know, an animation of Jesus, he almost always had great hair. I mean, Jesus always had great hair. There's such shine and such body to it. It was like he just walked out of a shampoo commercial. I mean, it was amazing. And then, you know, more times than not, Jesus, I don't know why they did this, but they always gave him a creepy smile. You know, such a creepy smile that if you were a parent, you would see, you know, your child. And if you saw a man with hair like that, smiling like that, you'd say, come back here, honey. Come back here, sweetheart. And it's like kind of weird. And, and, you know, but as a child, you didn't think very much about that. Jesus was kind of presented as this, you know, hippie, not so much like a revolutionary. And when it came to Jesus, when we were children, uh, he seemed anything but controversial. I mean, what was controversial about Jesus? I mean, he, he healed people, he fed people, he did good. You know, the things that he said, it seemed harmless. Uh, he, he was always seemingly mild and inoffensive. And that's the reason why in childhood, the greatest plot twist was when they put Jesus to death. And it was hard for us to understand why would anybody want to kill somebody like Jesus? I mean, the guy just went around doing good. The things that he said, what was so wrong with what he said? He fed people, he, he healed people. It's like, what's wrong with that? And we just couldn't hardly understand why Jesus was put to death. So it was also shocking to us. And then, you know, we're, we're in childhood and every year we're getting a little older and every year we're gaining a little bit more maturity. And, and, and if we're just honest, uh, at least for some of us, the way that Jesus was presented to us sometimes, whether through you know, teaching or whether you know, something we were watching, sometimes Jesus seemed to lack toughness at times. Uh, for, some, for some young boys and some young men, it was like Jesus lacked masculinity in the way that he was presented. He was so soft-spoken that his meekness bordered on weakness. And then, you know, Sunday school teachers, they would get their class together and we'd get around those round square tables and we would sit in those really colorful wood chairs and the teacher would lean in and they're volunteering and they're doing the best they can. But it was almost as if the message that many of us heard as children went like this. Jesus loves good little boys and girls. Jesus loves good little boys and girls. And the implication possibly being Jesus doesn't love the not so good little boys and girls. You know, Jesus loves, you know, good little boys and girls. And we heard that and, you know, they weren't intentionally communicating that and, and maybe we misheard it or maybe they misspoke, but, but that seemed to be the message. And, and, and so that, that kind of stuck with us and that was an idea and that was an image that some of us have carried on, you know, beyond our childhood. Uh, Jesus, you know, in our opinion, you know, by the time we get to, you know, adolescent or pre-adolescent years, you know, definitely Jesus was a nice guy, most likely a Republican. Uh, unfortunately, he died to 
too young in his early 30s, and he, he seemed really good. Uh, but the older that we got, we weren't really quite sure if he was relevant. He was relevant, you know, for the childhood, you know, teenage drama or whatever was happening in our home or the divorce of our mom and dad or whatever happened at school or some of the things that we were struggling with or battling with. Jesus seemed good. We just weren't sure how relevant he was. And, and then preachers like me would get up and they would, they would preach about Jesus. But sometimes Jesus seemed less important than the Bible, the way that preachers talked about the Bible and sometimes the way they talked about Jesus. And, and then at times, you know, the, the Bible or some of the things that pre preachers were particularly passionate about, it seemed like it was more important at times than Jesus. And, and so you just, you sat there and you listen and you're picking up things and you thought you were hearing things and you were wondering if that's what they were really saying or not. And, and again, all of this is forming an idea, an image of Jesus. Um, Jesus was often presented to many of us as just a means to an end. Uh, he was a way to miss hell and go to heaven when you die. So if you don't want to go to hell and you don't want to be a crispy critter, uh, if you don't want to torment, you know, in hell forever, then believe in Jesus. And Jesus became a means to an end. And, and everybody was thankful Jesus came, died, and was raised so that we don't have to go to hell when we die. And, and that was as far as Jesus went for some people. Uh, for some, it was as if Jesus was always obsessed with morality that what you did was more important than, than who you were. And, and parents love to leverage this idea of Jesus during you know, the teenage years. It's like, you know, they look at you and your mom looks at you, dad looks at you and says, okay, I'm gonna let you go to the party, but I just wanna remind you, Jesus is gonna be watching. <laughs> he is? Oh yeah, he's gonna be watching. The whole time? Oh yeah, he's gonna be watching the whole time. He's gonna be listening, he's gonna be watching. And it was almost kind of like this idea of the wicked witch and the wizard of Oz. <laughs> pretty. You know, if you, if you mess up, if you step out, if you say something and, and then you're kind of thinking, okay, uh, Jesus is just, that's what he's doing. He's just waiting on me to kind of mess up. And, and, and it stuck. Here's my question. What if some of our ideas about Jesus are incomplete or incorrect? I wonder if some of us need a fresh new vision of Jesus, a vision that emerges out of the pages of the gospels. I wonder if some of us are at a stage in our lives where we need maybe to allow a disturbing reevaluation of Jesus to take place in our lives. To reevaluate who we think Jesus is, what he said, and what he meant by what he said. To take a new look at Jesus with fresh eyes and fresh ears. Because maybe somewhere along the way, we have come to this incomplete incorrect idea about who Jesus is. And little have we noticed, but it has colored everything in our life. And here's the thing, if you and I will be open to a fresh vision of Jesus that we find in the gospels, and if we allow ourselves to reevaluate Jesus all over again, some of us may discover a Jesus that is greater than what we ever imagined. And that's where we kind of kick off because when Jesus showed up, Jesus showed up into a world that was dark and desperate. And when he showed up into this dark and desperate world, there was a rumbling beneath the surface. There was this growing curiosity. There was this, this mounting speculation and even this daring hope among certain people that maybe perhaps God was about to send his Messiah. And when you read through the gospels, to the disbelief of many, maybe even most, God had sent the Messiah. God had sent his son into the world to save the world. And he came in like a wrecking ball. He came in upending religious status quo. 
He came in threatening the political status quo. And it didn't take long from Jesus' birth and after his baptism, when Jesus goes public with his ministry, it didn't take very long for Jesus to be seen as dangerous. It didn't take very long for Jesus to be seen as a religious extremist. People looked at Jesus and said, he's dangerous, he's a religious extremist, he's an enemy of religion. Now, I want you to think about this because again, these, these sometimes can just be words. Think about it for what it may mean for you. Some of you, you work with somebody, you've got somebody in your family, and every once in a while, they'll kind of bring up the conversation of where you go to church, and you're like, you sure you should go to church there? You know, it, it, don't they think this, and don't they think, I've heard this, and I've heard that. And it's kind of uncomfortable when somebody thinks, you know, hey, you shouldn't be where you're at or you shouldn't be a part of what you're a part of and people, you know, mischaracterize or misunderstand. It's never fun to seem like you're outside the line of what's conventional. It's never fun to seem like you're outside the line of what is seemingly theological or that you're outside the line of something that is safe, tried, true, and tested. Nobody likes to be accused of that. Nobody likes to feel outside those lines. When Jesus showed up, Jesus was seen as an enemy of his religion. He was seen as someone who was outside the lines of conventional theology. People looked at Jesus, the religious establishment, religious people who loved the scripture, who loved worship, who loved worship music, who loved all the trappings of the temple, sacrifice, ritual, tradition. They looked at Jesus and they said, he's outside the line of what should be. And so Jesus, he steps onto the scene and he's seen as, as an enemy. And he's not necessarily a uniter as much as he is, he's polarizing. And, and I don't know, you may not like this, but, but when you read through the gospels, it's almost as if Jesus is itching for a fight. And he's not itching for a fight with the culture. And he's not looking for a fight with sinners. And he's not looking for a fight with Rome, the government. He's itching for a fight with religious people, with the religious establishment, with the religious leadership. And, and you say, well, I don't like the idea of Jesus itching for a fight, okay. Well, at the very least, he never cared to walk into one. He never cared to stumble into a fight with the religious establishment. Even if he didn't go looking for one, he let one come looking for him and he didn't care to be found. And that's the Jesus that we see. And so when Jesus showed up, he had this message that when people heard it, listen, when the irreligious and the immoral of Jesus's day, when they heard his message, they said, that sounds like good news. That sounds like good news. When the irreligious and the immoral people of Jesus's day heard his teaching, they said to themselves, if this is true, this is good news. And what was refreshing for irreligious, immoral people was repulsive for the moral religious people of Jesus's day. And we can't ever forget that because that is the driving narratives of the gospel. That the people who seemingly were furthest away from God, most broken, most screwed up, most jacked up, couldn't put one foot in front of the other. When they heard Jesus teach, they said, that's good news. But the religious people, they heard it. And they said, this sounds wrong. This doesn't sound right. This is repulsive. 
And so as part of this good news, Jesus, he offered an invitation. And this was Jesus's invitation. Jesus said, I want you to come to me. In contrast to coming to the temple, don't come to the temple, don't come to the altar, don't come to the synagogue, don't come to Torah, don't come to tradition, don't come to ritual, come to me. I'm in a category all by myself. And here's who I want to come to me. Those of you who are weary and burdened, and if you're weary and burdened and you come to me, I will give you rest. Now, many of us growing up, we heard this, this quoted in, in the context of the weariness and the burdens that life throws at us. That when you're tired of life and, and, and there's suffering and there's pain and there's disappointment, when you're weary and burdened down by life, come to Jesus and he'll give you rest. Now, there's a certain element of truth to that because the scripture says, hey, Cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. But that has nothing to do with what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people who are weary and burdened by religion. And when the irreligious and the immoral people of Jesus' day heard this invitation, it was like a breath of fresh air. Because Jesus said, I'm telling you who I'm talking to. I'm talking to those people who are tired of the weight that religion has placed upon them. If you're exhausted because you never know where you stand with God, you don't know if you're in or you're out. You don't know if things are good between you and God or not good. You're not sure if you're in his family this week or out of his family. You're not sure if he approves of you or disapproves of you this week. That you're never quite sure where you stand with God. If you're exhausted of feeling that way, if you're exhausted of that uncertainty and lack of confidence, he said, I want you to come to me. If you're exhausted because you're constantly feeling defeated and you're constantly feeling like a failure because you don't measure up, and you don't check all the boxes. And because of it, there's this reoccurring guilt and shame that takes place all over your life time and time again because you don't measure up and you can't check all the boxes and there's all this weight of condemnation. You're tired of feeling like you're wrong all the time. You're tired of feeling like you're bad all the time. You're tired of feeling broken all the time. You're tired of feeling like you're faulty all the time. He says, if that's how you feel and you're exhausted of feeling that way, I want you to come to me. If you're tired of the endless rules and regulations of what you can eat and can't eat and what you can drink and not drink and what you can wear and not wear and where you can go and where you can't go. He says, if you're tired of that, I want you to come to me. If you're exhausted from valuing yourself based upon your own performance and establishing your own personal value to God and to yourself and to others based on how good you think you are, how moral you think you've been, and how spiritual you think you are, how much you've been reading the Bible, how much you've been praying, how much you've been doing all the things. And if you're tired of constantly sizing yourself up, constantly evaluating yourself and scoring yourself, giving yourself a pass-fail, if you're tired of all of that, I want you to come to me. If you're angry at yourself because of all of this, Come to me. If you find yourself angry at other people because of the way they're living or the way they don't measure up, I want you to come to me. Don't miss it. He says, look, I will give you rest. He says, I want to give you a better way. And just not a different way, but a better way. I'm inviting you to come to me. Now, he says, I'm going to give you rest. That means there's no work to be done because I'm going to do all the work for you. I'm gonna finish the work for you. I'm gonna finish and do the work that you can't do. There's no conditions to live up to. I'm gonna meet all of the conditions for you. I want you to come to me and rest because there's nothing to earn. There's nothing to keep. 
There's no reason to pretend. There's nothing to fear. I'm inviting you to me. If you're weary and burdened, come to me and I'm gonna give you rest. You don't have to work because I'm gonna do the work for you. You don't have to live up to the standard because I'm gonna meet the standard for you. You don't have to have a certain level of obedience because I'm gonna be perfectly obedient for you. I want you to come to me and I will give you rest. And then he goes further, he says, I want you to take my yoke because there is a yoke. I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I want you to learn that I am gentle and I am humble. And when you learn that I'm gentle and when you learn that I'm humble, you're gonna find rest for your souls. Now, a yoke, a yoke was a law that a rabbi taught. Uh, a yoke was the interpretation of the Torah, of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. A yoke was how a rabbi interpreted and applied the Old Testament scripture. Jesus says, I want to place my interpretation and application of the law upon you. I want you to make it your own. And I want you to learn that I'm gentle. I have a strong hand, but I have a soft touch. Uh, this morning, I did what a lot of you did. I, I, I got in front of the bathroom mirror. I took my finger, I opened up my contact lenses and, and as gently as I could, because I know how, how soft those contacts are and, and how fragile they are. I took my finger and as soft as I could, I lifted them up and I put one in one eye and one in the other. Now, if I wanted to, my hands could easily destroy those contact lenses without even thinking about it. A strong hand, but a soft touch. Jesus said, that's how I've chosen to be with people. I've chosen to reach into people's lives and as gently as I can, as softly as I can, that's how I'm choosing to deal with people and with issues. I want you to know that I have a soft manner about me. I have a pleasant disposition. So if you go around thinking that Jesus always has a disappointed look on his face because of you, or Jesus always has an angry look on his face because of you, he says, I want you to know that I'm gentle. I have a pleasant disposition. I'm not hard to please. I'm not harsh. I'm humble. I don't look down on people and I don't condemn people. I want you to know that I'm gentle and humble. And when you understand my yoke, when you understand that I'm gentle and humble, you're gonna find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke isn't hard. My burden isn't heavy. That's Jesus' words. That's Jesus' invitation. This is not seeker-sensitive seeker church. This is not watered-down gospel. This is not make it easy as possibly can so anybody can do anything they wanna do. This is your savior, my savior, our master, our Lord. He says, I want you to come to me because my yoke is not hard and my burden is not heavy. And we should all just sit for just a moment and think about that. He says, I want you to follow me because when you understand how I read and interpret the scripture, you're gonna find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, what most of us never realized growing up, and some of us still haven't grasped onto it, unfortunately, is that if following Jesus doesn't feel like rest, and if it doesn't feel like freedom, we aren't doing it right. Jesus said, when you follow me, it's gonna feel like rest, it's gonna feel like freedom. And if it doesn't feel like rest and if it doesn't feel like freedom, there's something you don't understand. There's something that you're not doing right because to follow Jesus, it is rest and it is freedom. And some of us, this is a Christianity, this is a version of faith that we have never personally experienced in our lifetime because we have carried around ideas about Jesus, about what he said and what we think it all means and what we think the gospel is and what we think the gospel isn't. 
if following Jesus doesn't feel like rest and if it doesn't feel like freedom, there's something that we're not doing right. Now, Jesus is teaching us some really something important that we have to kind of pull out of this. He says there's two ways that we can relate to God. We can either relate to God on the basis of law or we can relate to God on the basis of grace. And Jesus was inviting people to leave a lifestyle of relating to God based on law and embrace a lifestyle of relating to God based on grace. Now, whenever you and I try to relate to God based on law, there's no rest in that. The yoke is hard and the burden is heavy. When you relate to God based on law, it's all about rule keeping. It's all about the boxes to check. It's all about trying harder, doing better. It's about moral scorekeeping. It's about, you know, the big sins of my life versus the little sins of my life. It's about, I gotta find somebody I gotta compare myself to and I'm, I'm a much better person than that person. But gosh, they're such a better person than I am. And, and we wanna try to get ourselves closer to the front of the line than rather to the back of the line. We wanna figure out how inferior, inferior we are, how superior we are. So we just go through life, you know, comparing ourselves to all these other people and it's just so uncomfortable and it's so excruciating and it's so exhausting and Jesus said I'm inviting you to leave that I'm inviting you to stop that when you relate to God based on law it's about a standard trying to keep a standard that you can't keep and then beating yourself up for it afterward but grace when you deal with God based on grace you realize it's about a relationship and you begin to understand that God loves you, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. Grace is about freedom. And it's about rest. It's about an easy yoke and a light burden that comes from trusting God's heart. When he says, this is how I feel about you. This is who I am. And this is how I feel about you. And it's about trusting what God says about his own heart. It's about not trying to win God's favor or keep God's favor or God's love or God's acceptance or God's blessings or God's anointing because you realize you already have received that in Jesus. It's about security and confidence. It's about gratitude, knowing what God has done, that God's grace is not because of our goodness, but it's because of God's goodness. But there's something else. Not only do we relate to God based on law or grace, there's something else to learn in this. We also learn to relate to one another based on law or grace. Whenever you relate to other people, other Christians, non-Christians based on law, you're constantly evaluating, constantly keeping score, constantly judging, constantly condemning, constantly criticizing. You, you, you find far more to criticize than you do celebrate. So it's so easy to criticize the wrong more than it is to celebrate the right. That's when we deal with each other based on law. Somebody may have 98 pieces of their 100 piece pie in line and in order. But what will we obsess about? The two slices of their pie that's out of sync. And that's what we obsess about and that's what we go to war about. That's when we deal with each other based on law. When people fall and fail and mess up, when we deal with people based on law, we usually move further away. We cut ties, we give a cold shoulder, we go silent. Silent treatment all around. When people, when we deal with each other based on law, it's just not fun because you never know where people stand. You never know where you stand in that relationship. And you get tired of, you know, people who give the cold shoulder and it's like, well, what did I do this time? Or somebody gives you the silent treatment and you're not sure what you did this time. But when you have a relationship with somebody based on grace, you're confident in the relationship. You're confident that even if you mess up and you fall down, they're gonna be there and they're gonna cheer you back up. They're gonna forgive when there is a mistake 
They're gonna give the benefit of the doubt. And even if you do mess up in the short term, they're committed to the long term. And when you deal with people based on grace, you've decided that you are going to celebrate what's right about them more than you decide to spend your energy on criticizing what's wrong. That's dealing with one another with grace. And all of us know, all of us already know which one of those relationships we like to have with other people. Because when it's law-based friendship, law-based relationship, you never know where you stand with them. But when it's grace, you know that you're good. You know the relationship's intact. So all of this Jesus is saying, I think to communicate that law values what someone does more than who they are. But grace values who they are more than what they have done. Now Matthew, he gives us this invitation of Jesus because of what he writes next. And what he writes next is this. He says, at that same time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. I want to make sure you're here with me. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. So the Sabbath is the controversy that's about to happen. It's the backdrop for this whole story. Now, for those of us who don't remember from Sunday school, a little bit of history. The history is this, that the Ten Commandments, you remember the Big Ten, the Big Ten, the fourth commandment was keep the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And then God went a little bit further and said, hey, I want you to work six days and I want you to rest one day. Now, he didn't really unpack what work means or what it doesn't because what work is for one person, it's life-giving to another, it's restful for another. He didn't really tell us what, you know, remember the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, what that meant. But it was so beautiful in its simplicity. I want you to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It was meant to be a gift. But the simplicity gave way to the complexity that religious people brought to it. And the religious people got involved and they said, well, we don't really know what keeping it holy means. And we really don't even know exactly what work is. So we're gonna do our best to come up with all of these rules and regulations about what God meant when he said, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so they came up with 39 classes of prohibited things that you couldn't do. Uh, one New Testament scholar, he gives them to us. I, I, I just want you to see this. He says there were 39 principal classes of, of behavior that was prohibited on the Sabbath. Sowing, plowing, reaping, gathering into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding. And go on to the next one. Cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing it, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it, making a warp of it, making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing two stitches, to sew two stitches, catching a deer. I don't even know how you catch a deer. How do you catch a deer? If you're catching a deer, I wanna see it. But anyway, killing, skinning, salting it, preparing its hide, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, blotting out for the purpose of writing two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing, lighting a fire, be beating with a hammer, carrying from one property to another. He said, each of these enactments have been discussed and enumerated over and over again that there were actually volumes where actually there were several hundred things a conscientious law abiding Jew could not do on the Sabbath. So what did religious people do? They took a gift that God gave his people and they turned it into a curse. They took something that God meant for rest and they turned it into a burden. They took something that God meant to be an easy yoke and they turned it into a difficult one. The religious establishment, they began to think of the Sabbath as more important than the people for whom the Sabbath was created as a day of rest. So they turned everything upside down and that's what religion does. It gets things backwards. 
It makes sense. It, it scratches our sensibilities and it's logical to an extent. And the religious establishment comes along and says, we got to make sure above anything else, we don't break the Sabbath because the Sabbath is sacrosanct. The law is sacrosanct. It's the most important thing. So it was no longer a day of rest. It was a day of fretting and worrying about whether or not you were going to break the Sabbath. So Jesus is on the Sabbath walking with his disciples and the disciples get hungry. And so they grab some wheat stalks and they rub their hands together. And then the kernels that are left over, they pop them in their mouth. Now, they're not stealing. This is not a meal. This is like a snack. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it allowed for you to take a snack out of somebody else's field when you passed by the margin of it. So they're not doing anything wrong. I mean, th this is exactly what's happening. Now, it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing unlawful. What's unlawful on the Sabbath? Well, what are they doing? They're rubbing their hands together and popping some kernels of wheat. I mean, real scandal. I mean, this is serious. This needs like a parental guidance warning. I mean, this is, this is bad. I mean, but here are these religious Pharisees and we're gonna see them all throughout the gospels do this. We see their self-righteousness because they always seem to be setting back, waiting for people to mess up and make a mistake. Now, a Pharisee will never tell you that. A Pharisee will tell you that they're safeguarding the truth. A Pharisee will tell you that they're standing for the truth. But the God honest truth of the matter is that they sit back and they wait for people to mess up so they can point it out, condemn the person and feel better about themselves. That's what we don't admit when we find our own selves being a Pharisee in our own lives. So here they are, they're measuring up, they're evaluating, they're watching Jesus, they're watching the disciples. And that's what legalistic people do. They condemn people. They condemn people who don't live up to their own preferences, their own opinions, and their own convictions. And then they force those convictions as burdens on other people. And they punish people. They hold people accountable and they yield consequences to people when people don't meet those standards. They end up judging people on all kinds of externals, whatever they wanna pick. They end up making moral judgments about people. They go around morally policing people. And when they morally police people, they say, you know what, you don't dress the way I think you should dress. You dress in a way that I would never dress. You talk in a way that I would never talk. You go to places that I would never go to. I can't believe you would listen to that. I would never listen to that. And then all of a sudden you're laying a yoke and a burden on people and you're judging their heart, you're judging their motives and all the while, never thinking about the fact that perhaps you've become a self-righteous, legalistic Pharisee. And so the charge is, hey, your disciples, they're breaking God's law. They're breaking the law of the Sabbath. They're breaking the fourth commandment. They're harvesting. And Jesus answered and said, hey, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? And this is, this is insulting because he's talking to a bunch of theologues. He's talking to a bunch of scholars of the religious law in the Old Testament and, and the Torah and the prophets. He says, guys, I, I'm sure you've probably read this. You know, he's kind of being a little tongue in cheek. I'm sure you've read this, but maybe the pages stuck together that day and you missed that story. Surely you've read about David, you know, David, everybody's favorite king. I'm sure you read, maybe you forgot, maybe, 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 I don't know, maybe you fell asleep that day, I don't know. But surely you remember when David was hungry and when his men that were with him were hungry. Now Jesus is gonna tell them a story that they knew. He's not, he's not, he's not questioning their knowledge, he's questioning their interpretation. And let me tell you what religious people get more offended about, not when you question their knowledge, but when you question what they think they know about what they already know. 
That's when religious people get very uncomfortable. He's questioning their interpretation. They knew this part of the Bible, but Jesus is gonna say, perhaps you missed the point. He said, you remember when David entered into the house of God? He's not supposed to go there. He, he went into the house of God. He and his companions ate consecrated bread, bread that's only meant for priests. And he ate that bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priest. Now, God had given a verse in Leviticus. There's chapter and verse. There's chapter and verse in the law where God says, okay, this bread is only for priests. Nobody else can have this bread. But he says, hey, even though God gave those clear commands that the consecrated bread could only be eaten by priests, David went in there and Ahimelech the priest gave David the bread that only the priests were to eat. He gave that bread to David and his men so David and his men could eat. And so everybody knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus's point was David, everybody's favorite king, broke the law. He broke the law. There's chapter and verse. He broke, he was guilty of breaking the law of God. Ahimelech, the priest, was guilty of breaking the law of God. The problem was the text never condemned them for it. God never condemned them for breaking the law. They broke the letter of the law. But Jesus is gonna say something that's really uncomfortable. There's something more important than the letter of the law. You say, well, what could be more important than the letter of the law? The spirit of the law. God allowed his law to be broken. Nobody but these priests can eat this bread. God allowed his law to be broken without penalty, without consequence, without judgment, without condemnation for the good of another person. Because the good of another person is the spirit behind the letter of the law. Think about this, parents. You tell your kid, tell your son, tell your daughter, hey, listen, I've had it. No more phone, you're grounded from your phone. I don't want you on the phone making no phone calls, no texts, no snaps, no Facebook, no Instagram, no anything. You're not to be on your phone. Me and your mother, we're going to the store. I don't want you on that phone. If I hear that you're on that phone, you're gonna be grounded twice as long. So no phone, you hear me? It's the law of the house, no phone. You leave, you're gone a little bit longer than you think you're gonna be gone. But when you come home, there's police cars all in the driveway and you're thinking, dear Lord Jesus. And you run in and you look at your son and your daughter. And he's like, what happened? What's wrong? Mom, dad, somebody tried to break in the back door. I called 911 and the police got here just in time. And then you raise your voice and say, did I not tell you not to use the phone? <laughs> no. You're gonna be, thank God. You did what you did because there's something more important than the rule you put in place. What was more important that there'll be no phone calls in this home is that you are alive when I come home. That's more important. That's the spirit of the law that supersedes the letter of the law. Jesus had already been teaching that, hey, when you do for others what you would have them do for you, that's the spirit of the law. That's what all the law and the prophets hang on. Jesus didn't define good. He told us to go figure that out. And if it's good for them, Jesus said, you do it because it's right for you to do. And so this was also unsettling for them because the Pharisees couldn't condemn David. They couldn't condemn Ahimelech because they never had. And to do so would be agreeing with Jesus. And Jesus's point is that the spirit of the law was more important than the letter of the law. And, and more than that, the idea is that the law, the law is never more important than people. 
The Sabbath had become more important than people. And Jesus is making the point that the law is never more important than people. Every parent knows this. You had rules in your house, but you loved your kids more than you loved your rules. And Jesus is saying your heavenly father is no different because the laws of God are never an excuse to withhold the love of God. Matter of fact, any interpretation of scripture that restricts the flow of mercy is the wrong interpretation. And to tease it out a bit further, it's always unlawful to be unloving. If Ahimelech hadn't given David that bread, he would have actually broken the spirit of the law because who would withhold bread from a hungry person? Who would refuse to do what was good in that situation? To refuse to do what was good just so that you could keep the letter of the law, Jesus would say that would be wrong because it would be a betrayal and a disobedience to the spirit of the law. It's always unlawful. It's always the wrong thing to do, to withhold mercy and love and kindness. He goes on, and this is, we wrap this up pretty fast. He says, or haven't you read in the law that the priests and the Sabbath at the temple, they desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? He says, those priests are working hard at the temple. They, they pray, they slaughter animals, but yet the law has placed what they're doing as a greater priority than the fourth commandment. So Jesus is, he's very uncomfortably inviting them to a radical rereading of the Old Testament. He said, I tell you guys, there is something greater than the temple here. And Jesus, when he was claiming to be greater than the temple, here's what he's saying. If the priest can work on the Sabbath because the temple work is so important, and if I am more important, if Jesus is more important than the temple, then his work and his interpretation supersedes it all. He says, if those priests can work on the Sabbath at the temple and do all that they do, because the temple work is so important. Guys, I am more important than the temple. And if Jesus is more important than the temple, then he is claiming the right to say everything that I say and everything that I interpret, it supersedes everything else. So he says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here because his interpretation would take precedence over everything. And the issue in all of this is priority and authority. Who has the authority to decide what's most important to God? Who has the authority to decide what's most important to God? And Jesus said, that would be me. Jesus argues that if the work at the temple superseded Sabbath rules, how much more does his work as the Messiah supersede the law of the Sabbath or Moses' law entirely? Jesus is showing something that many of us have never thought about and we kind of, we don't really know what to do with it. That God will allow one of his laws to be broken for the sake of a greater law, for the spirit of the law. And again, parents do this all the time. Parents do this all the time because we know there's something more important than the laws in our home. It's the children in our home. He said, guys, if you would have known this, if you would have understand this, you would know that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You've read those words, but you don't understand what those words mean. If you would have understood I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. He says, you guys have made an idol of sacrifice. You've made an idol of the law. You've made an idol 
of your scripture. You've made an idol of your interpretations and it's gotten in the way of mercy. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said, I'm showing you the deepest part of God's heart, the deepest part of God's will. Because whenever you make an idol of sacrifice or ritual or scripture or tradition, it will get in the way of mercy, love and kindness. You guys have made the law more important than people. God gave his law to people because he loves his people more. He said, because the law is the most important thing to you, you and God are on different pages. You're obsessed with compliance. You're, you're obsessed with rule keeping. Your theology has allowed you to mistreat, malign, insult, shame, marginalize, exclude, judge people. The way that you read the scriptures have allowed you to take the word of God and have a justification for not showing the love of God. Your idol has choked off mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So this is where, this is where we drop it. What has become an idol in my life that has gotten in the way of love? What is it? Has theology become an idol? Has our interpretation of scripture become an idol? Remember the scripture is infallible. The scriptures are inerrant, but not our interpretations. They're very, they're very fallible. They're oftentimes not inspired. They're not perfect. Has being right become an idol? Has politics become an idol that's choked off love? The more we understand the law of God, the less it will get in the way of the love of God. And Jesus says, for the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the right to interpret my father's law. I am the lawgiver, and only the lawgiver knows the true intent of the law. And I'm telling you what the true intent of the law is. It is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. On those two things hang all the law and the prophets. So what is Jesus saying? God doesn't love sacrifice. God loves you. God loves people. God doesn't love rules. God loves you. God loves people. God doesn't love laws. God loves you. God loves people more than he loves his commandments because he is a perfect heavenly father. And to prove it, he sent the law keeper to die for lawbreakers. And he who was perfect died for the imperfect. He who kept the standard perfectly died for those of us who had fallen short over and over again. And Jesus, he told this story and the text tells us that they went out and they plotted to kill him because Jesus upset their idols. Jesus upset their readings, their ideas and presuppositions. Jesus is anything but not controversial. And he speaks into our life. And I hope that as the irreligious of Jesus' day, what we hear, that it is the sound of good news. But if it ruffles your feather, if it makes you uncomfortable, if you start playing what if, and what does that mean? And where does that take you? And what about, and it'd be better may just have aligned yourself with the 
people who had a big problem with Jesus. So much so, they said, we've got to do away with him. Let's not be those people. Let's not approach Jesus that way. Let's hear what he says for what it was. Good news. A light burden, an easy yoke. Come to me, he says, and I'll give you rest. Father, speak to our hearts. Help us to know in this moment that you care more about us than you do rules and regulations and traditions. And God, you give laws because you love us. You give laws to your children because you love us. You don't love your laws more than you love us. You sent your son to prove that. So Father, may we rest in your love for us your great love for us, your deep love for us. And may it bring us the rest and the freedom that some of us so desperately need. Continue to speak to our heart in the days to come as we track with Jesus. And may we see him greater than we have ever seen him before. In Jesus' name.